Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here together by your powerful grace. Lord, I pray that that I decrease, that you increase, that you give your people ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful truths that are in John chapter 4. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Who went home after Sunday? You can sit down. Who went home and uh, read the rest of the story? Oh. It's nice to know who the elect are in here. Um, uh, where are we at? Where are we at? Where are we at? Okay. So, just to review, Jesus is heading to Galilee. He's done with Judea. He's heading to Galilee now, okay? And he's going to Galilee through a weird, unusual way. He goes through Samaria, right? So, the reason why Samaritans didn't go this way, and the reason why it's, or Jews didn't go this way, and the reason why it's unusual is because Samaritans were viewed as unclean. They would usually take the Transjordan and go around Samaria. So, but Jesus was not a racist by any means. He wasn't uh, limited to any geographical area. But we learned that Christ had a divine appointment. He had to be somewhere. So he went through Samaria. He started his journey probably early in the morning. He arrived around 12 o'clock at the hottest time of the day. And he's completely exhausted from his journey. He stopped by a well and enters a woman to come and draw water. So here comes this woman. Jesus asks her for a drink. And the woman is a little taken back by this because she can't believe, first off, a man is talking to a woman. Men don't talk to women in that days, in those days. A Jew is talking to a Samaritan, and he's asking for a drink from her bucket. So this is just weird to her. Samaritans were viewed as unclean, so she's a little taken back. But Christ then expands and talks about the gift of God and the living water, and she's just not getting it. 
right? She's maybe thinking of some type of different water, maybe some better tasting water. But what's evident is that her and Christ are on just two different levels. They, they cannot see each other eye to eye. And whatever she's thinking, it's just temporal. Christ is talking about spirituality. She's talking about uh, maybe there's a, is there a better well out there that you're talking about? Is there better water? And all I can see from this woman, and maybe you've seen it too, is some sort of mockery and some sort of attitude that she has with Jesus. I mean, when Jesus tells her about the gift of God and the living water, she tells him, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with. And the well is deep. Where, where do you get this living water? So you're telling me about some different type of water, the gift of God, the, but where do you find it at? Then she tells Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? So basically saying, who do you think you are? You're not Jacob. She's just jerking Jesus around at this point. She's taking Jesus through a rabbit trail. And she's not even taking serious what's happening at this moment. And at this point, what did you say that you would have just left it alone? You would have said, you know what? I'm done with it. She's not getting it. She's not understanding. I told her about the gift of God, the living water. She's just not there. She's being hard-headed. Her heart is cold. I'm done. But not Jesus. He pursues this woman. From the surface level, it would seem like Jesus is failing at this point, right? He cannot get through to this woman. He, he cannot break through. But, but mind you, this is going somewhere. This is going to lead to some place. He didn't walk through Samaria for no reason. He didn't sit by a well simply because he needed a rest. A woman didn't come by herself by mere coincidence. There's a purpose in all this. This was, this was foreordained by God. He will not let this woman go. This woman is coming with him. He wants this woman. And he's going to get this woman. That's the beauty of the Bible. That there's a story in every chapter. There's drama. There's a climax. And today we're going to see both of the drama and the climax. Jesus came for a particular purpose. He came for a particular woman. And he will not leave until he gets her. Mark 2.17, do you remember the, the passage? He said to them, Jesus, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ did not come for people who have an abundance of water, who have an endless supply of water. He came for those who are thirsty, those who are sick, who need the physician. He came to wake up the dead. We left off last week in verse 15. He said, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Remember that? At this point, she, she, she might be tired of Jesus. See, I'm done with the living water. I'm done with the gift of God. So whatever you have for me, give it to me now. Lead the way. Show me where this well is at. Because I'm tired. But she might be sincere. Because she says, so I don't have to come here to draw water. I'm tired of coming here. 
I'm, I'm tired of the awkward stairs. I gotta, I gotta sneak off in the hottest time of the day. And then when I pass by these women, they stare at me, they talk about me. I don't want to come here anymore. So if you got something better, if there's another location that you can point me to, then give it to me. Because I'm tired of being here. One of the amazing things about the Bible is that not only it teaches us about God and how we worship God and how we should live according to God's word and to his law, but it also teaches us about ourselves. And that truth is written all over John chapter 4. The Bible teaches us about who God is, how we should worship God, who we are. John chapter 4 is an example of all of those things. In order for us to see Christ as the source of living water, in order for us to taste Christ as the foundation of living water, there's a mirror that you first must look at. There's an issue that you must address. And when you have seen yourself for who you are, then and only then you'll be able to worship Christ in spirit and truth and embrace him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So today we will see Jesus the prophet in verses 16 to 19. Verses 20 to 25, we will see Jesus the object of true worship. And in verses 26 to 30, we will see Jesus the Messiah. The reason why this woman's heart was so cold toward Jesus and the reason why she just completely shut off all that Jesus was offering her was because she didn't understand her condition. So Jesus addresses her condition for her. She didn't want to look at the mirror. So Jesus puts the mirror in front of her. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you're living with now is not your husband. So you are correct. You have no husband. Jesus is slowly exposing her emptiness now. Jesus is so slowly exposing her need for him. He started out with saying, if you knew the gift of God, if you only knew, lady, the person who was standing in front of you, I would have given you living water if you would have asked. So now I'm going to expose how much you really need this living water. I'm going to expose your spiritual thirst for me. I'm also going to expose your sin. Jesus wants in. Do you see? He, he, he wanted in with the living water. She rejected it. Now he's, not, now he's going to come in and he's going to expose the most deepest and darkest secrets that she has. He's slowly getting inside of her. He gave her a hint of who he was. Remember? I'm the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. So now he's going to show her who he is. We will see that in a minute. But he's making her deal with her sin. He's reminding her of her secret ways, the places where she doesn't want to go, the places that bring her the most shame and the most guilt, like us, right? We didn't want to go there. 
But true repentance, we know, something comes before that. You have to deal with your sin. You have to repent of who you used to be. Woman, I have living water for you. But, but there's no room for me to give it to you because you're living in sin. I gave you the opportunity to receive me as the gift of God. You didn't understand, right? I offered a living water for you. You didn't understand. So now let's talk about something that you do understand. Go get your husband. And like a typical sinner, what, what would she say? I don't, I don't have a husband. What are you talking about? Right? <laughs> and I wish I could have seen her face when Christ told her, you're right. But you have had five husbands. Imagine the shock that, that she would have had in her face. And the one that you're living with now is not your husband. She's probably saying, oh man, who's this dude? Let me take this dude a little bit serious. But she doesn't. She doesn't take him serious. And many preachers will try to use this chapter as a model for evangelism. I've listened to many preachers on John 4, uh, probably about 20 times. And they all say the same thing. Be like Jesus. Reach the lost. Go to Samaria, the, un- the, the people who, who don't want you, where you're not welcomed. And that's true. We are to be like Jesus. We are to evangelize. But what is true evangelism? That's right. True evangelism is not just going to the marketplace. True evangelism is not just going to Union Avenue. And not just going to California Park. And giving them a sack lunch, or me going to the marketplace and trying to engage in a culture who think that they're too intellectual to even bow their knee to a God. That's not true evangelism. And it is to a sense, but, but what is true evangelism? Go on to the world, go to the unreached people. Do you understand what that even means? I. I just came to the knowledge of what that really means. Be like Brandon. Be like Brooks. Be like Brad. Go to Papua New Guinea. Where the only people that will know you, the only person that will know you, is Satan and all of his minions. Be like them. Go reach people who have no access to the gospel and who are dying in their sins day after day. That's evangelism. Forfeit your life in order to gain life. Forfeit all of these material things. And then when you do that, when you look at all the things that that you have given up for Christ, and you look to the future of what Christ has in store for you, you will look back and say, gain. I gained everything. Yes. How awesome would that be to to live in the jungle, to live in a city where they don't even speak English and someone has to translate the gospel for you. This is what it means to do the Great Commission. 
Not just go to your local town. Not just go to L.A., to New York. But you go where the gospel is not presented. But this is not a message on evangelism. So we'll save that for next week. So they will say, be like Jesus, right? But there's one problem with that. If you haven't noticed, we're not Jesus. We can't do what Jesus did. We can't reach the inner part of this woman like Jesus did. Right? Jesus told this woman about her entire sinful past. So who are we? Only one other option. We're the woman. We're the woman in this story. We are the ones who have committed adultery against God over and over and over and over and over. And maybe some of you are still committing that adultery. We have had five fell marriages. We are the ones who have tried to find love and happiness and joy in all the wrong places, haven't we? We are desperate like this woman. She is desperately trying to find something real, something that brings her far more pleasure, far more joy than that empty relationship that she has with that man. With that well that she has to come. I love what John Piper said. No woman goes through sexual relationships with six men without either starting desperately or ending desperately. Either way, you're starting thirsty. Just like we started thirsty. And if you're not regenerate, then maybe you are still thirsty. And let me tell you right now that living water is being offered to you. She's thirsty. We're thirsty. She's craving an everlasting joy that only Christ can fill. Five failed marriages. Do you see yourself now? This was you jumping from relationship to relationship. Hobby to hobby. This to that. Being so caught up in things that you can only see and touch and feel and taste and smell. Because you couldn't even dream of maybe there's some different water out there that can take all of all of these temporal things that, that bring me the most satisfaction. I'm talking about joy in Christ. In order for a living water to be drunk from your heart, in order for a living water to spring up in your life, and, and, and for it to be a well in your spirit, your sin must be dealt with. So have you dealt with it? Have you dealt with the sin that's in your life and that possibly is still in your life? John Calvin said in his Institutes, it is evident that man never obtains a true knowledge of self until he has previously contemplated the face of God and then come down from that contemplation to look into himself. I love how he describes us here. For such is our innate pride. We always seem to view ourselves as just, as upright, as wise and holy, until we are convinced by clear evidence 
of our vileness, folly, impurity, and injustice. What Calvin is saying, you can't even see God for who he is without even seeing yourself for who you are first. That's the problem. We try to worship God, but there's this there's an issue that we haven't dealt with. There's an inner man that we haven't had a conversation with yet. This is why Jesus is bringing up her sin. <laughs> Woman, do, do you not see how much sin you are in? Do you not see how deep you are in? Sleeping with men is just a normal thing to you. You are so comfortable in your depravity like we all were. Sleeping with a man who you're not even married to, probably just using you for sex. And that's what sin uses us for. We don't use sin. Sin uses us. And like the great John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Maybe some of you are still living in this adultery. Maybe some of you are not comfortable of of going back and looking at the person who you used to be. So bound up. Maybe some of you are still so locked up that sin, like Augustine said, claws at you every single day and tells you, are you really going to release me? Do you really think you're going to go on in life without me? Who do you think you are? But if you can look past the adultery, if you can look past the five failed marriages, if you can look past the well, you will see that there's living water for you. You will see that living water is being offered to you. So this morning I examine, uh, I plead with you, examine yourself. Examine yourself. In order that the living water may be drunk. Allow the word of God to expose your inner being. Because if you don't, the day of judgment, whatever that you did in the darkness will be brought to light. And the woman responds with this in verse 19. Sir, I perceive, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> So after telling this woman about her sin, she says, Hey, you you got a good thing going. You know some things. I think you're a prophet. Uh, yeah, I am. But that's a typical sinner response. She didn't want to go there. She didn't want to deal with it, right? So... She tells Jesus in verse 20, we will see Jesus the object of true worship now. Verse 20, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This transition between verses 16 through 20 is remarkable because she totally changes the subject on Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus just said, okay, let's talk about the gift of God. Let's talk about the living water. Let's talk about your sin. Uh, No, let's talk about worship. Let's talk theology for a second. Let's go somewhere else. And the crazy thing about this whole scenario is Jesus just goes with her. He doesn't bring up living water again. He hasn't brought it up. 
He hasn't brought up the gift of God again. And he doesn't even bring up her sin again. You want to go to worship? You want to talk theology? Okay, let me give you a crash course on theology. You see, Jesus of the Jews had their temple in Jerusalem called Mount Zion, right? And the Samaritans have their holy place of worship on Mount Gerizim. So you have these two mountains. She's asking Jesus, okay, where do we worship? Do, do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship on Mount Gerizim? Where, where do we go? <clears throat> Typical sinner's response. Just like probably your response was, okay, where do I go? Do I go to Valley Bible to go or do I go to Sovereign Grace? Do I go to Tehillah? Do I go to Canyon Hills? Where do I go? In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So Jesus is saying, Ma'am, if you don't know, let me tell you something about what's going to happen. That there's going to come a time when Mount Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim are going to be totally irrelevant for worship. So he, he puts a, a bullet through what she thought there. And also this is a prophecy. We saw in, in AD 70 that the Romans came in, destroyed the temple. Yes, did. Soon after that, they went to Mount Gerizim and they slaughtered thousands of Samaritans. So they ended that worship. So this is a prophecy also. But notice how Jesus says, the Father. What does that remind you of? This is a direct correlation. When the woman said to Jesus, our fathers worship on this mountain. And in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? This woman is too worried about the fathers. She's too worried about tradition. She's too worried about people and places and external things. But watch how this connects to verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is for the Jews. Simply put, when he says salvation is is from the Jews, salvation will come through the Jewish line. Mm -hmm. It will come through the Jewish people. The problem, lady, is not that you're worshiping on the round mountain. But the problem is you don't know the Son. For if you knew the Father, you would know the Son. At least the Jews know what they worship because we believe the whole Bible. Remember, the Samaritans, they only hold to the first five books, first five books of the Bible. So he's saying you'll even have the full account of God. You'll even have the right data. At least the Jews have the right data to worship. But you can't worship properly because you reject my word. You're too worried about location. You're too worried about places. You worry too much about where you ought to worship instead of whom you ought to worship. You know a lot about the fathers. You know about your father Jacob. You knew where the fathers worshipped. But you don't know the person who the fathers worshipped. So you want to talk about fathers? Let me tell you about my father. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship in, worship him in spirit must worship him in spirit and in truth. Simply put, the hour is at hand, and the hour is here now. When the true worshipers will rise up and worship God in spirit and in truth. There's going to come a day, lady, and it's now. When there will be no need for temples, there will be no need for priests, no need for sacrifices, no need for altars, for candles, for mountains. It's going to all be done away with. I'm going to usher in a new era of worship. All these symbols will be gone away. And there will be a separation between true worship and false worship. Worship has always been from the heart. But some play this religion game and just go with the flow. Some just come to church and will just sing the song for singing's sake. And Christ is saying, we ain't going to have that no more. The Lord said in Amos 5, I hate, I hate your worship. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your Sodom assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. But take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. God is not looking for superficial worship. He's not looking for superficial Christians who are just wrapped up in religion, who are just wrapped up in just going to church and just to be a good person. And He's not looking for that. It has to be something real. He's seeking those who will worship him from the depths of their souls, whose hearts are inflamed who will sing a song like we just sung right now and remember the sacrifice of Christ. And even the the mere thought of that brings you to tears. It's not just a song being sung. Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There's a disconnection between what your lips are saying and where your heart's at. Singing songs is not the definition of worship, if you don't know this. Songs do not dictate how worship should go. I know some people who will say, I'll I'll pick and choose what song I worship. They didn't sing that Hillsong song, I'm not going to worship. They didn't sing that Jesus Culture song, I'm I'm not going to do it. They didn't sing my favorite, they didn't sing my hymn. I, I I can't get down with that. Songs don't dictate the worship. What's in your heart dictates the worship. Worship is only music. It's not just music, but worship is knowing God. Worship is honoring God. Worship is obeying God. Worship is proclaiming God. Music is the only one way we express that adoration. I love this one. John John MacArthur said, I've been asked so so many times, with such long sermons, and John MacArthur preaches for like almost an hour, how much time do your people have to worship? And my response has always been, without long sermons, they don't know how to worship. 
Your worship is informed by your understanding of the revelation that's in that book. Your worship only goes up as high as it goes down. Because the deeper you go into the truth about God, the higher you go in worship. Superficial worship, superficial knowledge of God leads to superficial worship. And then people get manipulated. Then, then the lights go a little bit more down, dim. And you hear just the weirdest instruments and, and, and crazy things. But what he's saying is the higher you know God and your knowledge of God is, the deeper your worship will be. We always hear this. You always hear pastors saying theology and doxology, right? What does that mean? That means that the higher your theology is, the higher that you know God, the deeper you will worship God for who he is, for his attributes, for his holiness, for his grace, his mercy, his sovereignty, his love, for sending his son to die for sinners like us. Worship is not just worshiping God for what he has done. Worship is not just worshiping God for saving a wretch like you, but worship is worshiping God simply because he's God. What are you going to be doing in heaven? You're going to be worshiping God. Jesus changed how we, how we do worship. Woman, listen to me. The hour is coming, and it's now when, when worship will no longer be these external things and these rituals, but worship will be what's internal and what's real and what's genuine and what's from the heart. These are the people that God is seeking. And God, God will find them. Just like he found you. Now let's get to the climax of the story. After Jesus gives her a lesson about true worship, and he exposes her of who he, of she really is, he's now going to reveal who he is. In verse 25, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. So if I can paint the picture for you, I can, and this is not inspired, so don't take my word for it, but I can imagine her probably just picking up her things, gathering her bucket, and while she's doing that, she's probably saying, well, you know, I I know the Messiah is going to come, and and when he comes... He's, he's going to tell us all things. So, so whatever you got to say about worship and about the living water and the gift of God, it it's, doesn't even matter. Because there's, there's someone that's going to come. And when he does, he's going to tell us all things. So she's probably walking, and then she hears one last thing from Christ. In verse 26, I who speak to you am he. So... If the gift of God didn't get to her, if the living water didn't get to her, if exposing her sin didn't open her eyes, this made her drop her bucket. What did you just say? I who speak to you am he. Why is that important, Isaiah? There's no he in the original Greek. Why is that important? What does that mean? This is an I am statement. What does that mean? Why is that important? I am 
is the name of God. So, so the person who's standing in front of you, the person who's been talking to me about the gifts of God, living water, my sin, you're, you're, the, you're the I am? This is so amazing. You want to know why it's so amazing? Because this wasn't revealed to John the Baptist. This wasn't revealed to his disciples yet. This was not revealed to the leader of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus. This was revealed to a lowly, sinful, adulterous, Samaritan woman. Now let's connect the dots. He also revealed this to you. But let me go a little further. He doesn't do that to everybody. The great I am doesn't tell everybody who he is. Do you see yourself in this woman now? Is it now starting to make sense? What, 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 what's, all going, what's all going on? When, when Moses was being told to go to Egypt and speak to this man named Pharaoh, God told him, For I have heard the cry of my people, and it's time for me to save them. So Moses tells God, What do I say to the children of Israel when they ask me what your name is? God replied, I am who I am. You go tell the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The woman, woman, the one who is speaking to you is the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. This is the I am. I am the I am. I am the I am who was promised in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament speaks about me. Speaks about a Messiah who will come and save his people. He would be born of a woman. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would come from the line of Abraham. He would be the descendant of Isaac and Jacob. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be an heir to King David's throne. He would be called Emmanuel. He would be a prophet. He would be declared the son of God. He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. A messenger or forerunner. John the Baptist would prepare the way for the Messiah. He would be rejected at his own for, by his own people, the Jews. He would be preceded by Elijah. He would speak in parables. He would do miracles. He would be a sacrifice for sin. He would be betrayed by a friend. He would be falsely accused. But he would be silent before his accusers. He would be mocked and ridiculed. He would be spit on. The Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. And his bones would not be broken. He would be crucified with criminals. And on that cross, he would be forsaken by God. He would also pray for his enemies. And his side would be pierced. And he would be buried with a rich man. Man, what a way to die, huh? What a way it ends. But, But the amazing thing is, 
God tells us, don't, don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Don't be brokenhearted. Thou shalt not fear. Don't worry. This isn't the end of the story. He will resurrect from the dead. He will walk out that tomb, a risen, victorious Savior. He will walk out that tomb, unshakable, indispensable, unbroken champion. He would ascend to heaven, and he will be seated at the right hand of God. This is the Messiah. This is the seed that God promised in Genesis 3.15 when he told the serpent, there's going to come someone through the seed of the woman, and he's going to bruise your head. This is the one. I'm that one, man. Do you, do you understand me now? Are you, are you catching my drift? I'm the great I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who was promised long ago. Woman, the one who would come to tell you all things has arrived. And he is standing right in front of you. I am the one who Moses spoke about. Matter of fact, I'm greater than Moses because, see, Moses did lead the people out of Egypt and he saved them. God used Moses to save his people, but I will do something on a more larger and grander scale. I will save my people from their sins. I will take my people's sins and I will nail them on the cross. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. I am greater than David because I will defeat a more bigger giant. Like David did it on the behalf of his people, I will live and I will die on the behalf of my people. I am greater than Job because Job couldn't even imagine the suffering that I will go through and I won't even lose heart my face will be a flint that whole time. Amen. And I am greater, far more greater than Adam. Because I will not fail. Amen. I am the Messiah. I am the one who was promised by God. And I am the one who God said will save his people from their sins. So I say to you again, one of the amazing things about the Bible is that not only it teaches us about God, about who we are, but it teaches us about this promise that was made by God and this promise that was kept by God in Jesus Christ. And because of that great promise, And after we have looked at ourselves in the mirror, we will be able to worship this God, the Messiah, the great I Am, with all of our hearts for that amazing truth. For the last two weeks, we learned about the living water, and Jesus gave the woman a crash course on water. Next week, he will give a crash course on food to his disciples.